I put myself out there. I show people what's possible. And if I can give somebody hope, if I can show people that your life doesn't necessarily have to be over just because of something you go through. It's tough. It's hard. You have days where you don't want to get up. And I always say you should really look for something positive in each day, even if some days you have to look a little harder. And by that, I mean, I have days where I think, oh my God, everything's so shit. I don't want to get out of bed. But hang on a minute, I'm alive. I have my kids. I have this. I have that. Um, maybe I can't walk today. Maybe I'm waiting on a leg because someone won't fund me a leg. And that's in the situation I'm in at the moment. But I'm here. I'm alive. I can still use crutches. I can still get up and about. I can still go and enjoy things. So it's just about showing people that you get one life. And I don't want people to look back on in 20 or 30 years' time and go, shit, I just wasted my life. Being so, yes, you can be upset. Don't get me wrong. You have days, but don't waste your life worrying about something that you can't change. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. When doctors discovered a rare form of cancer in Kelly Cartwright's leg when she was just 15 years old, they gave her two impossible options. Radical surgery, which wasn't guaranteed to work, or amputation. She chose the latter and quickly discovered while there were some things she couldn't do anymore, there was plenty she could do. So she set her sights on running with a dream to win gold at the Paralympics and achieved exactly that in London in long jump and silver in the 100 metres. Kelly is a mum of two, an inspirational speaker, a model and now an Australian record-holding powerlifter. And she was even the first above-knee female amputee to climb the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. She's honestly one of the most uplifting and optimistic people I have ever met. She's turned her lemons into an opportunity to empower people to embrace their bodies, encourage diversity in the media and live their best lives. I hope you feel just as empowered to achieve your dreams after this chat as I did. Here's Kelly. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And thank you for having me in your beautiful Geelong home. (laughs) It's so spacious. I feel like I should move out of Melbourne and get space like this. Yeah, look, that's why we left Frankston. We had a unit and having a crazy dog and two kids, we definitely needed the space. I can imagine. (laughs) Now, with all of my guests, I really love to get a feel of, you know, what what life was like when you were growing up because I I don't know if it's the same with you, but when I think back to my childhood, it just feels so simple and it just feels like that's where you learn so much about who you are and the journey you're going on and what was life like for you in the Cartwright household? Oh, I think, I mean, probably everybody thinks they had the best upbringing as a kid, but looking back on it now, we grew up in a tiny little town called Port Arlington. Our days, oh, it's it's incredible. It's it's grown now so much. But when we were back there, we just used to walk down the beach, jump off the pier by ourselves. I played netball, loved sport. My friends lived around the corner, so we'd just walk around to each other's houses. And actually, my nan and granddad lived in a granny flat in our backyard. So I don't think many people get their nan and granddad no, living with so them their nice. whole life. They were like my second parents. And yeah, I couldn't have asked for a, a more homely house. And yeah, my mum and dad just let us do whatever we wanted. But at the same time, we knew everybody in town, which can sort of be a bit bad when you're trying to sneak out of your house at a young age and everyone finds out very quickly. But yeah, we Not I was, that you would have done that, of course. Never, just once or twice. And I got caught. So that's... Both times? Yes. So don't do that in a small town, <laughs> no. note yourself. And you always were very, very sporty. What sports did you like to play? I loved running. I did love running more long distance, but netball was my passion. I think I started at a very young age. And the local football netball club was a very small community. My brothers played football. My dad would umpire, same with my mum. So I played for about five or six years and absolutely adored it. I was centre because I loved running Mm -hmm. as well. And yeah, I'd probably pretty much put up my hand for any kind of sport except for swimming. 
Oh, I really? didn't like swimming. No, no. <laughs> I love the beach, but doing laps, no, not your thing. No. As you were saying, you were very, very sporty and you did a lot of different things. So I'm sure aches and pains were kind of just part and parcel of being so sporty. And it was during that time that you noticed there was pain in your knee. Is that yeah. right? Can you talk me through that? I probably had the pain for two years and I kept telling my mum and mum would sort of brush it off a little bit thinking it was just growing pains or playing netball. And then once we told the doctors, they told us the same thing. It was probably growing pains. They sent me to physios. I had, I sort of strapped it so I could get back on the court. It just, it wasn't too excruciating where it stopped me from walking. But I got to the point where at school, if I was sitting too long, it would start to ache quite a bit. And then if someone tapped me on the knee to get my attention, it would have, have me toppled over. And that's when I start, think my mum started to realise we should probably go check this out somewhere else. And, you know, my local GP had been my nan's doctor, everybody's doctor. So he, he really had, you know, it wasn't his fault that he missed something at the time, but it just sounded so much like a kid growing up. Yeah, and a sporty kid at yeah. that as well. And then you went and got some more further tests. Done. Yes. And I think I think I read that it was initially a cyst that they thought it was. Yeah. And so once they did the scan and found the lump and it was really deep inside my kneecap. So there was no indication that there was even a lump there until the scans came back. And then they told me it was a cyst that I could leave it and it would probably go away in a year or two by itself. Or I could have keyhole surgery, remove it, potentially be pain free and get back on the netball court and 10 days off school. So (laughs) obviously I chose the 10 days off school and the keyhole surgery and yeah, then it went from there. Oh my God. Thank God that you- I know. I could have said no. I definitely, I could have definitely said no. I'm not sure how long I would have been able to put up with the pain, but you know, part of me was like, oh, maybe I won't. So- That's incredible. And then there was a day that when, when the results came back, they called you and your mum and dad in. Yeah. What were you like, what's going on? Did that feel really unusual? Yeah, I don't know why because I'd never been in that situation anyway. But for some reason, he told me before the surgery, we'll call you in 10 days, probably come in, have a look at your bandages, and then you'll be off on your way. So when he called and said, I really need to speak to both your parents and yourself, I sort of thought to mum, I said to mum, something's really weird. This is really strange. You didn't sound normal. And mum just didn't even think twice about it. Who would, really? And then, yeah, so for some reason this gut feeling when he sat me down the whole time until he told me, I just was waiting. I was anticipating something was going to come out of his mouth. I didn't expect what, Wow. but yeah. Yeah, and what did he tell you? You know, he sat me down and he still took took off the bandages and he said, I'm really sorry, I have some bad news. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) He said it actually wasn't a cyst. It was a rare form of cancer called synovial sarcoma. And synovial sarcoma, I'm... You probably ask everyone in the room when you're talking and no one had really heard of it. And it's about one in two million people get that type of cancer. So, of course, I'd never heard of it, but all I heard was cancer. My nan had passed away from cancer and my granddad had cancer. And I think the first thing you think is, oh, my God, I'm going to die. That's as soon as you hear those words. And I think when you're young and you've hurt yourself or you're going through something, you look to your parents and I saw both of them just crying. So all of a sudden I was even more scared. And that was, yeah, it was, it was terrifying. And what was, apart from that initial thought of, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, what else was going through your head? Or do you just, can you remember? Or was it just a feeling of almost feeling numb? It, it is like feeling numb. It's like, I didn't really know what to think. I didn't know what to ask. I didn't really know how to feel. My dad was asking a million questions, but unfortunately he'd never seen that type of cancer. So he hadn't, he couldn't answer them. Mum and dad actually left it up to me on the drive home to tell my brothers that I had cancer. And one of my brothers, my eldest brother, I just never forget, he walked outside and sat outside across the lake and didn't come in for hours. And to see him like that was, was really heartbreaking. And although it was hard to hear it, we really had no idea what was to come. So we didn't really know too much until dad got on the computer and that's where he spent the next week was yes. researching. And you were 15 at the time. What were the, what did the doctor tell you to go away and think of? What were your mm. options from there? Well, I went straight to the Royal Children's Hospital and that's when I met with my surgeon and he said, you have two choices. And he said, you have two choices, but realistically I didn't. I have, He wanted me to have the amputation, but he said, you can have minus uh, radical surgery or amputation four inches above your knee. And I just said, I'm not having my leg amputated and, and walked out. And that was, that was how I felt that day. And he gave me a week to think about it. In that week, I spent at the Royal Children's Hospital in the oncology ward, getting scans from head to toe. 
I'd read a lot about the cancer if it had spread, I wouldn't be here today. So once I found out it was just in my knee and spending so much time around children that, you know, probably will never get to go home, the cancer they have or they've never been home, their parents have been there for months, I started to realise that if I had lost my, if I lost my leg, I could potentially be cancer free. Wow. Even though knowing that, I don't know how a 15 year old comes to decision that Yes, amputation is like, you know, how did you gear yourself up to make that decision? And when you did come reach that decision, was that terrifying? Look, it happened so quickly. I always say that a week is, it did seem long, but I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I didn't have a lot of time to really think too much about the future. I had to make this one decision. And I remember the night before all my friends came over and we had some sort of a party. It sounds weird. And I think I was sort of in that anger stage of they were great, they were there, but they weren't the ones going through this. They were going home that night. They didn't have any idea what I was going through. Had you told them? I hadn't and they came over and we were speaking about it and they were amazing and they were giving me gifts and things like that. But then I just kept thinking, why me out of this many people? Why me out of my friends? And it sounds horrible, but and then the drive to the hospital was just something I don't think my parents will forget. I asked them to turn the car around a million times. And that was the time my mum turned around and said, Kelly, if I could take your spot in a heartbeat, I would. And I think that's what made me realise that this is a decision I've made and it's not just affecting me. Cancer and illness affect not just the person going through it but everyone around them. And I knew that it was probably, if if not a bit harder for my parents to see their youngest child go through that. So I just put my head down and realised this is a decision I've made and yeah, to shut up, really. Goodness. But so amputation obviously was one option. The other option was a really radical yes. surgery. Yeah. What would that have looked like? That would have looked like skin grafts, plastic surgery. They would have taken my calf from my other leg, potentially not even a functioning knee because they had to cut so much away. But that wasn't the main problem. The main problem was they weren't really sure how deep the cancer had gotten into. So they can only cut to a certain degree. So once they'd stitch me up, and put me back together, I could have still had cancer. So they sent my leg off after getting my leg amputated and it turned out that it was pretty deep and I would still have cancer had I have made that other decision. Oh, my goodness. You know what? It's it's really strange that day kind of something about the children's hospital, as horrible as it is going to the hospital, the people around you, your surgeons and nurses, they don't make you forget because you're in a hospital, but they made me feel fine. They made me feel calm as I could be as well as drugs, they, can, they do calm me down. And I just knew that I was in the right hands. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And not so much of the pain, but waking up the next day, knowing my leg wasn't going to be there. And I think that was the scariest thing is the unknown of what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like? Am I going to feel my leg anymore? Am I not going to feel my leg anymore? Those weird things that go through your head. And do you, remember, well, do you remember being told how long the surgery was? Yeah, about five hours. Wow. And I think that was the longest five hours of my mum and dad's life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine what they must have been? Have they told you now what, how that all felt for them? They ordered me a cat oh. <laughs> that they said I was never allowed to get in those five hours and they just sat out, outside the doors and just waited for the doctor to come and tell them I was okay. And I do remember waking up from it very quickly and, and feeling ill but then going back to sleep till the next day and the TV above my head, the reflection of the sheet that my leg was gone and that's when I asked dad to turn it around and just wasn't really to really look at ready to look at it just then and there and it was just so real in that moment. How long did it take for you to look, I guess, and come to terms with your new body? To be honest, not too long. I mean, it took me a long time to come to terms with it and feel yeah. confident, and that was many years later. But I just sort of dealt with it each day. I dealt with different things that came up. My friends came up and I got a bit overwhelmed. They meant well, but it just got so overwhelming that everybody was laughing and chatting and going home and I wasn't. And it's again, it's not their fault, but it's very hard to feel okay in, in that atmosphere. And like I said, the nurses, my surgeon, he was amazing, just got me out of hospital within a week back wow. home. Yeah, so back to normal, normality, back to my friends down in Geelong and, and learning all things all over again. What did your rehabilitation look like post-surgery? Very painful. It was something that I didn't expect. I thought that I'd get fitted for a leg and I'd be back walking. I had my leg amputated in the November finishing year 10. So I wanted to get back to year 11 and year 12. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't getting fitted for my first leg until about the March or April. So it was a good few months of letting the bone heal, the scar tissue heal. And even when I did get fitted, I'd probably only be able to wear my leg for about an hour a day because the pain was so severe. And I never thought it would end. 
I just thought my pain, the pain in my stump would be there forever. But like anything, it just had to get a bit stronger and tougher. That's incre- That's something I never would have thought about. So there's there's pain associated with. Yeah, I know that probably sounds silly, but I've just never even thought. No, of that. and I didn't because now I'm not. I mean, I have my days, but it's so used to it now. And the 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 way they make a leg, they make sure the weight is not really on the end of your stump. But because I had my femur cut in half, it just took a long time for that to really heal. It takes about a year for a bone to heal. So it, it was a bit frustrating. It was times where I really wanted to throw the leg on the ground and give up. And I got to school on crutches and that was hard, being the one that people were sort of keeping their distance from a little bit and staring at. I didn't want to be the different one in year 11. When you're 15, 16, you want to blend in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how did you get through that that period of yeah being 15, 16, 17 and feeling like the different one or the odd one out? I wore my brother's school pants on 40 degree days when I got fitted for a leg until I finished school. So like everything, there's some things I wish I could go back and do again. I had a boyfriend. I actually had a boyfriend at the age of 14 to 20 and he stayed with me throughout the whole lot. And that was incredible. And he made me feel normal. And like I said, my friends were incredible. They would carry my bags. They would piggyback me down the beach so I could still go to the beach club parties, (laughs) do a bit of underage drinking. But I still wasn't really confident in myself. I signed up for PE for year 11 and year 12 and sat on the sidelines. I didn't want to be the one that people stared at too much. I didn't want to run or walk funny. I didn't want to be in front of people in certain circumstances. But other than that, I, I sort of just kept going being myself. As you said, there were times that you got caught up in the why me, the, that, yeah. vi- that space of victimhood. Would that come back and flare up and get worse sometimes when there were activities that you wanted to do? I don't think the why me. I think I dealt with that and I sort of thought, why not me? It's not It's not fair that someone else has it. But I definitely had moments where I was angry at the fact that my friends were out at a party one night and I was sitting at home. And it's not their fault. They shouldn't stop their life for me. And they were still fantastic. But I still sort of dwelled, dwelled in that saying, well, why should they have fun and I can't have it? And I think that was came and, go, came and went until I realised that I can go and do all these things. I just may have to take a little bit longer and sometimes I have to sit out. So there was moments where I took a lot out on my parents and I do feel sorry for them <laughs> now, but you take it out on the, those closest to you, I think. Is there a sense as well going through something like that of mourning your previous life and while you're getting used to your yeah. new life? Yeah, definitely. I think you start thinking about all the things you used to do and you automatically at the very beginning think, I can't do that anymore. But you just have to find a new way. But it does take time because you take for granted getting up out of bed in the morning and putting your two feet on the ground. And I couldn't do that anymore. You know, there were certain things that took me a lot longer. Going to the beach was a lot harder. And so I'd put it off a little bit. So yeah, I definitely mourned the times when it was a lot easier. There's so much emphasis, understandably, on the physical well-being with something like this. What did you do to support your emotional and your mental well-being throughout the the process? Yeah, look, I find this question quite hard because I didn't have counselling. I didn't see a psychologist. I didn't, I still to this day don't think I needed to. And that's just the kind of person I am. And I didn't really know how to answer this question because I don't have one specific moment that showed me that I was going to be okay. I think the thing now looking back that got me through was setting those goals for myself was doing my dead ball with everybody else, even though it was probably very embarrassing and very difficult, you know, starting to run or starting to get back to sport. And I think just trying to be as normal as I was before sort of counselled me in a way of showing me that I'll be okay and having something to look forward to, making my mind busy. I didn't really have anything specific that helped me emotionally or got me through each day. It was just my parents, my family and having things to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. And Pro, is it was it within that that you rediscovered running and a passion for running? Yeah, I actually was sitting on the sideline in PE and I had an amazing PE teacher and she came up to me and showed me a flyer for the Paralympics. And I oh, look, to be honest, back then I didn't really realise what kind of disabilities were in the Paralympics. I just assumed it was mainly wheelchair racing. And now you just got to turn on the TV and you can see it. But back then it wasn't televised as much and things like that. And I'd already start, told people I wanted to learn how to run. And I had this walking leg and it was a bit of a piece of crap back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> had straps going around my waist. So dad and I Googled how to teach an amputee how to run. I didn't know about specific running legs then. So there's still to this day is about 10 metres up to 100 metres in my driveway so dad and I were at the front trying to learn how to run on this on this walking leg. And it was in a week or two that my teacher came and showed me this flyer and I went along to a talent search. And I really didn't know what's, 
I wanted to do. And that's when I met other Paralympians and I met people like myself. I'd never met anybody really with a disability, anybody who was an amputee. So it opened my eyes to realize that, wow, these people are incredible. They're traveling the world as Australian professional athletes. And that's really where it kickstarted. And how did that, just making that realization change, I guess, the way you viewed yourself and you viewed your future? Oh, I, I always say this, if, if somebody, and I know it happened so quickly and it's a great program now that they do in hospitals, but if somebody came up to me in hospital and showed me, and as an amputee, what they were doing, if they were athletes or they were still traveling the world or doing what they loved, I think it would have made my mum, my dad and myself a lot more confident in my future. So yeah, it made me excited when I saw this. I thought I can be competitive. I can get back to sport and potentially travel the world with it. Is that then just jumping way ahead and why it's so important for you to put yourself out there like you do to show 15-year-old versions of you that there are examples that are absolutely killing it at life. Definitely. I think we need to, you know, you've got to turn on the TV now and I've been on national TV. I've been to the Paralympics. I've, I've done things that people can see just what you're capable of. But I also think it's important not just for people my age when I went through it, but younger children and their parents. I think parents worry a lot when something happens to their child what if they can't do this or what if they still can't do that? And I just to be able to show them that we're normal people, we can do pretty much everything that you do, maybe a little bit different, but I think that's really important. Yeah. And how long was that Was that time between discovering this passion for running and getting this flyer and being at the Beijing Paralympic? It would have been about two years. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it, it snowballed pretty quickly and I, I have to admit I scraped through with a qualifier for Beijing because – when I went to that talent search with the flyer, I was aiming for 2012. So I knew I had a long journey. It just so happened that once I got this running blade, started running a little bit more and training as a, not a full-time athlete, but, you know, getting there, I scraped through and, and qualified for the 100 metres for Beijing. And I was so excited and so nervous. The local athletics track in Geelong probably had 30 people down there too. Standing in the stadium <laughs> with 90,000 really shook me up, but yeah, it was incredible. Because I think what's remarkable and it's definitely worth mentioning is that you got there using a leg that wasn't built for running. Is that right? Well, I started training on my leg that wasn't for running. Is that like <laughs> yeah, you don't run that on that. Yeah, how much more difficult does that make it? Oh, for instance, I probably ran my first competition close to 30 seconds for 100 metres on a walking leg. And in Beijing, I ran around 17 seconds. Oh, wow. So it's a, you, you don't usually run on a walking leg. So it wasn't until halfway through training to Beijing that I did get the sprinting leg. But even then, I think I held my physio's hand for the first month. I was so scared to run on this blade because it's set up so differently. It takes a long time to get used to. How is it different? What, what, what is it yeah, different well, it's a prosthetic walking leg is shaped like a, a normal leg in somewhat. It looks like a robot, but it has a rubber foot with toes. There's no give in the foot to be able to help you to run, whereas a spring, a carbon fibre blade is shaped like a blade. It gives you energy return and a lot more bounce. Yeah. So it, it mimics running and it helps on the athletics track to be able to support a running-like momentum. That's why I'm very bad at explaining like legs. <laughs> no, I completely that's understand as good as what you're going to get. And this is from someone that has no idea, so you could explain that yeah. very well. And what was it like competing at that elite top level? There was, there's nowhere else you can go above Yeah, that. yeah I was shitting myself. <laughs> I didn't sleep the night before the final. I took 20 no-dos the next day. <laughs> I stood out there and I thought, oh my God, I cannot see my parents in these 90,000 people. And I came last, but you know, I was, I was disappointed only because I'd ran slower than what I had, but at the same time, I was so new. And then I sat in the stadium that night and, and saw a couple of my teammates get a gold medal and heard the national anthem. And that's when I said to myself, I'm going to get a gold medal. I want to be a Paralympian with a gold medal. And then what happened after? So Beijing was finished. Yeah. What happened after that? I came back home to Geelong and was offered a scholarship to the Institute of Sport in, in Victoria. So I moved away from my family for the first time in with a friend in Melbourne. That was a big change. I think my mum welcomed it. They were so sick of me standing in the kitchen <laughs> making them cook me exactly what I wanted every day, taking me to training sometimes. And then, yeah, became pretty much a full-time athlete. As a Paralympian, we still have to work, but... I did train morning and night, Saturday, Sunday, and just it changed my world. I I became 10 times fitter. I became more hungrier and, yeah. And it gave you that 
purpose and that drive, I imagine, it did. as well. Yeah, it did. And I was I was in I was part of a group, my own squad then. We all had disabilities and we're all training for the same thing. And that really made it a lot easier. And being around elite athletes from different sports, whether it was footballers, netballers, it's great to have that support around you. Did you ever through all this and as your career was building, take just a second to stop and I guess marvel at how far you'd come and pat no. yourself on the back. No, you didn't. I still really haven't. It's really funny. I've, I was actually listening to someone speak about this the other day and I think as long as you're still striving for something else, you, you do it and you go, right, what's next? And I think that's what I've always done. There's certain times I've sat back and gone, wow, that's a really short journey and I put everything 110% into that and I was proud of myself. But I, I think when I'm officially retired from everything, maybe I'll look back and think about <laughs> how far I've come or when I write a book, maybe one day. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, you absolutely <laughs> should do that. Then you made the London Paralympics yeah. and you did achieve your dreams yeah. and you scored gold in, and correct me if I'm wrong, gold in long jump and silver in the 100 metres. Yes. What does it feel like having getting that medal put around your neck and the Australian anthem playing? Oh, relief. <laughs> this is one of the things. But I had a really quite a tough journey in those four years with athletics. I was struck down with injury quite dramatically and thought there was times that I didn't know how I was going to make it, but I was going to make it. That was my mindset. I had to have my leg reamputated in 2010. Oh, my gosh. Why, why is that? From all the – you put three times your body weight when you're oh, running. Okay. So every second doctor is don't run as an amputee. <laughs> Probably is responsible, but that wasn't an answer for me. And I finally found somebody who looked at the scans, looked at my stump and thought, you really need a clean slate. You need to get rid of the bone spurs, the damage, the tissue damage that you'd done. And this was the end of 2010 and I needed to be at the 2011 World Championships to qualify for 2012. So it was a very short journey. I had my leg amputated in Sydney, flew back with my mum, was in the gym the next day pretty much after being released from hospital. And wow, I, you don't rest much, do you? <laughs> no. And I just knew that I had I had a goal. Athletes are silly and stupid sometimes when it comes to goals, but they yeah, they have their head down and one one thing to focus on and I had times where I actually for the next two years after the amputation had to have injections in my stump every three months, nerve blocks, just to get me on the track. So it was it was a hard journey. And so standing on that podium for my coach, my parents, you know, my athlete friends was relief and incredible. It was It's a dream come true, as, as cliche as it sounds. It is a dream come true as an athlete to even make a final Absolutely. at Olympic or Paralympics. Is, is incredible. But to stand on there and know that that's what I aimed for four years ago and even the silver medal, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to come home with two gold, but I did a personal best and I was beaten on the day. So, yeah. And then you probably, I don't know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're thinking, okay, I'm reaching my pinnacle. I'm reaching mm-hmm. my peak. There's still so much more I want to achieve. I've got the next Olympic, I've got the next yeah. Paralympics as well. And then it was all over because you had an, an ankle injury that yeah. just wouldn't get better. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I really was just reaching my my peak. At, probably only a year before that was when I started to really get the times down, the jumping down. So, yeah, my intention was to come back from London, have a break, have a party a little bit, do all the things <laughs> that, that we weren't allowed to do, drink some wine and get back to sport and aim for the next world championships and then the next games, Rio. So, it wasn't until about a month after getting back from London, I started to, I couldn't even get up in the morning. I put my foot on the ground and it was so swollen and so sore that I couldn't walk properly. And I started to stay in bed all day. My coach would call me and say, where are you? And I'm like, I'm not coming today. I didn't really know what was wrong until obviously I got scans. And then the doctors told me again, not to run again. But this time it was, it's my only ankle. I had surgery. They thought it would fix it. It didn't. I had lots of injections, cortisone, blood injections, and the cartilage damage is just quite severe and the arthritis is quite severe and it's wear and tear, so bones on bone. But I didn't give up then. I probably should have, but I came back probably four or five times in the next two years thinking that it would work. And look, to be honest, it wasn't just to do with my ankle, why I gave up on and off, and I think it was my mental state. I was was suffering with not being at my peak, I was starting all over again and my ankle was never going to be better. I had to just manage it and I really struggled with that mentally, not feeling the best. I came from the highest of sport to the lowest and yeah, I had to take a step away from the sport and, and really reassess things. How did you come to terms with something you'd become so passionate about and had given you so much confidence and purpose was now being taken away from you? To be completely honest, I've never, I haven't officially retired ever because I don't know that I can 
bring myself to saying that. And in the back of my mind, I still think I I can do it. Who knows? I have this one goal in my mind, which we'll talk about later, but it took four or five years for me to actually get over it. I still kept thinking, I kept going to the gym. I kept holding on to it, even though I knew I was out partying. I wasn't concentrating on athletics and I lost myself. I started to worry. I remember the phone call telling my mum and dad, I think I'm going to retire. I think I'm going to hang up the boots unofficially. And I was scared because I thought that's what they wanted me to do for the rest of my life. I thought they only knew me as Kelly the runner and I thought I was letting them down. I really lost my identity a lot. I got told where to go, you know, what to eat, when, when to sleep, where to train. And then, like you said, I lost my leg and I found this identity and then I'd lost it and a purpose. And it sounds silly because there's so much more to life than sport and that's what people try and drill into you, but you don't realise that at the time. So I got really lost. I really, really lost myself. And I, I partied a lot, I, you know, but I travelled the world and that's what really made me realise that there is more to life. And coming home from that and focusing on my motivational speaking, meeting people, and then another direction was another sport. I think that's what helped me because I wasn't ready to give up sport. I wasn't ready to stop being competitive. I just probably couldn't do it in the way that I wanted to at the time. And that's when you discovered powerlifting. Yes. Is that right? <laughs> well, can you talk us through a little bit about that? What, what is it? Oh, it's bench press. It sounds so boring. I just bench press. <laughs> I do. But I was in the gym anyway for about two years before my coach who coached me in athletics actually told me about para powerlifting. And I'd always love lifting weights, heavy weights. And I always got in trouble because long jump, you don't want to lift the heaviest of weights, but you still want to be in the gym. So I was at the point where I was like, I'm not doing long jump. I can lift as heavy as I want. And then I met with the head coach and he's like, you have potential. It's all done on body weight to what you bench press. And so I just started to love it. I loved heavy weights. I loved bench press and I loved being back competing against people and having a goal. So it just made sense. It sounds really funny to people when you go from running to bench press, but we're in the gym a lot anyway. And the gym was the only thing I could do for so long. Yeah. And then, of course, in amongst all of this, just to add something else to your plate, you also became a mum to your son, Max, (laughs) and just recently to a little girl, Charlie. What's more difficult, competing in the Paralympics (laughs) or being a mum? Being a mum, hands down. Training ends, being a parent doesn't. So at the end of the day, I used to have a nap and eat some food and go to bed and recoup for the next day. You can't do that as a parent. You know, you're on 24-7 really and it changed my life dramatically. Max changed my life for the best. And like I said before, there's so much more to life and whether it's children, whether it's something else. And for me, I found a purpose with, with having Max and knowing that, yeah, I can share the love with him. And I, I still wasn't going to give up sport. I knew that I wanted to still be an active, fit mum and, and compete, but definitely it changed my world. It turned everything upside down. And I went from Kelly training, traveling, athlete, speaking to being a home, stay-at-home mum. And I struggled with that. I struggled with my parent, my partner going to work every day and here I was at home and I was used to doing so much. And I think that really took a toll on me a little bit because it changed everything. But then, you know, you get used to it, you learn different ways of, of coping. And then when I started to get back into sport, and I think that's the reason I really focused on bench press because it was my own, it was my own thing. Yeah. So how, so after Max was born, how long did it take to get back into powerlifting? Probably about six months. Yeah. Even to the gym, I sort of, you make excuses, don't you? Because you just, you are tired. You're tired. <laughs> exactly. I'll start next week. I'm doing yeah. that at the moment. My, yeah. my next one's only four months, but I'll get there by six months. <laughs> yeah. And then I, yeah, I, my partner's amazing. I got to travel again. I got to go away and team camps and, you know, and, and I speak to parents all the time and some people don't want to leave their child for one or two days and that is totally fine. Like that is what they love doing. But for me, I love taking a break and getting yep. away and being part of a team Same. or, or you know, going away for a few days and then it makes me come back a better parent and, and keeping something for yourself is really important. So now that you're a mum yourself, can you imagine what your parents must have been oh. experiencing when you've gone through everything you went through? Yeah. Does it make you, I don't know, go step into their shoes and, and, and think about how they must have felt throughout it all? Yeah, look, I don't think I could ever imagine what they went through, but nobody warned me as a mum, how much you worry about everything. And I'm probably next level. My partner tells me I'm a bit of a helicopter parent. (laughs) But you worry all the time. And I actually broke my little one's finger about three, four months ago. 
his finger got caught in my prosthetic leg. This is, it's a horrible story. I was brushing his teeth and he put his finger in my knee and I didn't realise and I stood up and I ripped his whole fingernail off and broke his finger. Oh, my God. So the guilt, I didn't stop crying for three days. The nurse is like, you have to stop crying. He'd stopped. He had surgery. And I sat there and thought, oh, my God, this is, n- like, realistically, it's horrible, but nothing compared to what my mum went to through. And the parents are probably there for a lot worse than what I was. So to, to even go through that, it's horrible to see your children scared and not understanding what's going on. So, yeah, that was pretty scary. So I can't even imagine that what my parents thought, especially with the words cancer. Did yeah. you ever, have you ever had that conversation with them since becoming a mum and just being like, I finally get it guys how much it felt for you I haven't but my mum and dad have been interviewed a couple of times not around me they don't say too much and I don't bring them to my talks anymore because they cry too much (laughs) but I've I've heard I've seen my dad and I've seen my mum speak to people and say how much they wish they could have taken taken my spot and now being a mum if anything happened to him like even when he's sick I wish I could just take it from him so Look, I, I haven't really spoken the words, but I think we know. We yeah. know that there's nothing like a parent's love no, in the whole world. Is nothing, there? and you, it's it's amazing, but it's also so heartbreaking because you just love them so much that you don't want them to. And then it hurts. Yeah, so I think that's everything. The thing. It's like if a kid doesn't want to play with him one day, I'm nearly crying. <laughs> I know, and like you, it's this amazing like dichotomy of like you love them so much and you. But then everything's also so much harder because your life is so much harder and you've got it you're not sleeping or your your whole world is focused yeah. on them. But it's like, how can something make my life so much better but so much harder? I know, it really it, How it does is. that make sense? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm done after two, so, <laughs> so you're like, so I don't have to think about no, after this. Get through this. And you, obviously having a daughter, what do you hope to teach her about body confidence and accepting herself for who she is as she gets older? Yeah, look, I want both of my children to grow up accepting everybody. I want I think everything starts with children. I'm I'm lucky that I didn't go through primary school as an amputee, I think, because I've heard a lot of stories that kids can be cruel. They don't know all the time. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get the words that they say. But they also I walk into a supermarket, for instance, and a kid will be pointing at my leg saying, Look, Mum, look at her robot leg. Why is she like that? It looks funny. And parents are so quick to pull the kids away, which I get. Oh, my my three-year-old is starting to say things now and I just want to crawl in a hole yeah. and die. But I'm trying to encourage parents. If I've got my leg out, if I'm walking around, obviously I'm okay with it. I would love for them to come up and ask me questions. Yeah. And that's why I encourage my kids. Or I show them videos of Paralympians. I show them videos of different people and explain to them that it's okay to be different because by pulling kids away or telling them not to ask or stare implies that there's something wrong with someone so being true. different. Whether it's a disability colour race, you know, sex or sexuality, anything like that. I think it's important where always starts with kids because you don't, you only have to look at some adults that have been very sheltered and, you know, the same, they've grown up still feeling the same way they did when they were younger. So, and I want my kids to, if something happens to them or if they're not something that they think they should fit that one size or look the same as someone else, I want them to know that they're enough. They're okay. It's what's on the inside that really matters. And I hope I can do that. Social media is scary and I love social media, but it also can be very scary. That's an incredible way to bring up your kids, I think. And I think it will make them adults that, yeah, that they accept people for who they are and yeah. they won't judge people for where they've come from or what's happened to them I know, or what I, they do I or can don't only have. Yeah, I only, I can only walk into daycare and Max has never really asked about my leg, maybe once or twice. But well, they're because just so used to exactly. it. Exactly. So yeah. when I walk into daycare and all his friends circle my leg and go, why do you have that? He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> so I don't know that I have to do too much because I am surrounded by different people. We don't talk about it too much. I just say, mummy has to put her leg on today or mummy's leg's sore or look, there's mummy who used to run. So I haven't done too much, but I just want him to really never exclude people and also just be, understand that everybody is enough no matter what they look like, where they're from. So I hope it's going to be tough, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think you definitely will be able to do that. And I think I read somewhere maybe on your blog that there was a bit of a funny story when some of the kids were asking what happened and you try and say it in ways that <laughs> is very palatable for young kids to understand and Max yeah. just blurted out. What did he say? Oh, and one of the kids was asked. I go to schools a lot and talk. I try not to do two younger kids because it does go over the top of their head and then some start worrying, what, what if I lose my leg? So there's certain ways you really have to try and talk about it in a in a way where it doesn't scare them but then they also understand. Yeah. And I was trying to tell the – I'm like, oh, I didn't have a leg so the doctor – gave me a leg and he's like no the doctor cut it off with a knife and the little kid was horrified because then all you've got to go is mum I'm not going to the doctor anymore (laughs) 
So I try so hard. It is really difficult. I love my gigs. I love speaking and sharing my journey, but kids are tough. Yeah. And I've, I've sat there and explained to them for half an hour and they'll put their hand up and go, so how did you break your leg? And I've been there for 30 minutes already. <laughs> so it is, it's over the top of them. So we have to be, we have to teach them in a way that's very simple. Yes. Yeah. And it is hard. And, and like I said, Max hasn't really asked. So I'm not sure what he thinks at all. He just thinks that's mummy's leg. Yeah. And then yeah. Charlie will probably be much the same. Exactly. I just well. hope I don't break Charlie's finger in my knee. Oh my gosh. That, that <laughs> it makes story... me feel sick when I think about it. I can't even sometimes. <laughs> the story kind of, yeah, makes me. It is. Oh, I can only imagine how you'd feel. I remember yeah. when Ollie was really young and he fell out of the high, his oh, high chair. No. And you, you don't just... want to check him, do you? You kind of like, I close my eyes when Ryan's just like, you got to go check him. It's so he just... wasn't here and there was blood everywhere. Oh my God. <sighs> and I was like, I, I was in my undies. I ran next door and I was like, because I thought she was in there. She wasn't. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> And I was like, you're just hoping yeah, she I'm is. like, she wasn't even there. I'm like, someone's going to help me. So I rang my dad and I just screamed and like, get here. He probably thought something horrific had happened. But I just couldn't look at it. I can't deal with that stuff. No. But I had to. I had to man up. It's incredible <laughs> how when you're a parent, because I hate blood and I like it, I, I actually faint when I see other people's blood. But then Ollie, so a week after he fell out of his high chair, he also cut his finger on a shaver and that was bleeding oh. everywhere. And it's uh, that's something I would have fainted on if yeah. that had happened to you here and I saw that. But you, you no go choice. into mum mode yeah. and you're like, oh, my God, I just got through that and didn't even, yeah. you know, you just know how to I get think, from A to B. It's really yeah, crazy. Yeah, I think it's with that. It's another question I get is I don't know how you did it. And I think sometimes you don't realise what you're capable of or what you can do yeah. until you're in that situation because you don't and you just sort of go into this mode of survival mode and you have to. Well, absolutely. If you were, yeah, 13 or 14 and someone told you what the next few years was going to entail you probably would have been like well oh no I can't do that yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah and then you've said that there was a time that and you you mentioned it before that you covered up your legs no matter what the temperature was what how did you overcome that yeah it, it took a long time actually and don't get me wrong I'd still go down the beach and swim I never stopped doing those kind of things but sport made me stop and then the reason sport made me stop is because running on an athletics track you can't wear pants all day especially changing a leg from a walking leg to a running leg you need to be in shorts so I had to start getting out in front of people and then I was I wore this ridiculous foam cover with a stocking over my leg that you could tell was a fake leg but I thought oh it looked a bit normal and I went from that to now I don't even wear a cover I have a pole and I think you know some days I don't want to get out of the car and be some days you struggle. Some days you're sitting in the car and you think, oh, today I just don't want to be sad at Can a you just not be bothered? Yeah, yeah, I think those kind of ways. And I just don't want to be different, which is fine. And sometimes I don't feel like explaining to people what mm. happened. But it took a good few years to wear my leg out and think, this is who I am. This is my leg. And it beats people going, oh, why are you limping anyway? So I think if my leg's out there, it's obvious people will move along and not think twice about it. And also show people that you know, it is what it is. I'm still out being a mum, doing what I'm doing. It, it took a long time. And I understand I've met people who are born with one leg who still don't wear their leg out. And that's just who they are. And I get it. But for me, I prefer to have my leg out. I prefer to show people this is who I am. You also do, which I think is really important to mention, you do a lot of modelling. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, which it doesn't surprise me because you're absolutely beautiful. <laughs> how important is it for you for, for the media to show a diverse range of people? Yeah, look, it's huge. And I think in the last three to four years, the media and campaigns have really caught on. I think they've still got a long way to go and not just including people, but I want to get to a point where, and I think it was great with Reebok, I did a fashion show and even with Kmart, they didn't come out and say, here's a girl with one leg. They just put me in there. I think we got to a point where we don't have to talk about it all the time. Yeah, that that was what I was going to ask, diversity versus tokenism. Like I'm sure sure you've probably – has there ever been times you felt, oh, I'm just feel like a token? Yeah, And I think it's changed. Like I remember a few years ago people, if I had a dress on or something and I was there because of my leg or because of who I was, but they wanted me to lift my my dress up just to show in a photo. I think that's sometimes – the the extreme but I also get my brand is who I am my leg is who I am it doesn't define me but it's the reason I am what I'm doing but yeah I think we've got a long way to go and I'm really hoping that the Paralympics is showcased the ne- next year a lot more than it was it's, it's amazing we're from ABC to Channel 7 but we didn't get a lot of airtime so just stuff like that as well just turning on the TV and having people do one of your biggest brands when they're ad campaign, like I said, not mentioning too much, but just putting them in there and making people think twice about, oh, there's a person there with one arm or, or, you know, in a wheelchair. So just making it normal. Yeah, it's just something on TV that you don't even, as you said, talking about. It's just just part of turning it on. 
In the last 15 years, have you noticed a change in the way that media, that the media does approach people that have, you know, do come mm. from all different walks of life? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's probably been the last four or five years. I've been asked to do campaigns. Probably my first one was about eight years ago and I reckon it was for Cotton On and it was a photo shoot. And I don't remember ever seeing anybody with a disability on a big brand, on a poster, wearing their clothes. And I don't, I, I, now I do. I see it all the time. I see, I did a L'Oreal ad, but also the L'Oreal ad in America was somebody with alopecia, you know, burns, things like that. People that are everybody in society. So I think it's changed so much. I think I was the only one back then. And now it's becoming a bit of a norm to have a diverse range of people. And I don't mean, I think what's frustrating sometimes is, they talk about diversity and in a catwalk they might put someone who's a size 14 on the catwalk and think that's diversity mm-hmm. and I think, well, that's just probably 90% of, <laughs> Seriously. of of body size of Australia. Like it's, it's I think that's the range. I think it's a normal size. So but they I think, think they're being different. Yeah. So I think it's about putting lots of different shapes, not just that, just really different people. So I think it's really important. Now, hopefully it, it gets better in the future. And has that become a bit of, has that become a purpose and a bit of a passion project for you to make sure, to really put yourself out there to give yeah. people these examples? Yeah. I, when I got asked to do Dancing with the Stars, I think that was the first time I thought about it because I said no I said I can't do that I'm not going to go I can't dance professionally I really thought I couldn't but then I thought what about if I'm on national tv with one leg like it's huge and so I I put myself out of my comfort zone and felt uncomfortable for other people because the amount of messages I got saying oh my god I turn on the tv my little girl has this and now I've seen you do this it's so encouraging or someone who's just lost their leg sees turns on tv and sees that and that's what it's all about it's it's you know, it's not necessarily putting it in everybody's faces, but it's taking the opportunity when I can. How does that make you feel when you get those messages? Oh, incredible. I, you know, I look back on my time and I think, my God, I wish I had somebody then. And it all happened very quickly, like I said, and we didn't have social media back then. So you couldn't just get on and research somebody as much as you can these days. So yeah, it's, I'm all about trying to normalize every type of body. Yeah. Absolutely. And what I love about you is how you manage to find the humour and talk, and you talk in your, on your blog about the funny side to being an amputee. Yeah. What are some <laughs> moments that really stick out for you? Oh, lots. It's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny as well because I think some people when you tell stories and I've like expect you to get upset or cry a lot and I never really have once I lost my leg. So I always looked at the humor side of things and I always sort of had that attitude where, well, this has happened, my leg's not growing back. So I've always sort of been that that person. But being in a Paralympic team, everyone makes jokes about everything, every kind oh, really? of disability. <laughs> nothing is off, off limits. So you learn to get a humor with them. But one time I was 16 or 17, underage drinking, <laughs> um, at a party, had a spa, took my leg off. Back then I needed a special tool to put my leg back on. So instead of taking my leg with me, I ordered a taxi, left the leg at the party, hopped down the stairs, went home, went to bed, woke up the next morning and thought, shit, I've got to go get my leg now. Don't know why I didn't take it. I had a boyfriend at the time as well. He didn't bring it. And I got back and it was just full of beer. The boys had been drinking beer out of my leg all night. Oh and God. like I'm like, well, that's pretty gross <laughs> for you guys, not me. <laughs> so, and that was one time. And I just get I just get asked all the time, you know, what happened to you? Like straight down the street. And I'd think, whoa, what should I... I'm, I'm not very witty, but a couple of times I'm like, oh, actually, I shark bit my leg off or things like that when I think about it. Yeah. And oh. what's their faces when you say shark bit your leg? They're just like, oh, oh. And people, they, that, are people that abrupt. Oh, yeah. Just, wow. Yeah, especially it's funny. I, I feel like it's a token. My leg is a token for people to interrupt me in the gym, interrupt me everywhere to talk to me. I, don't, I wouldn't see them talk to my friend you know, working out in the gym. But for me, it's it's all of a sudden like, what happened to you? Not, hey, what's your no, name? Hey, go, I get that so way rude. too much. Do you find it rude? I'm very rude. Yeah. Um, I encourage kids. I encourage people that's, if I'm sitting on the plane, different. you know, yeah. next to somebody, have a conversation. But it's just feeding their curiosity and, and in interrupting me and thinking, hang on a minute, you're walking around here. You don't want to know my name. You don't want anything about me. You just want to know what happened to my leg. And I get that all the time. Wow. Yeah. That really, really, really surprises me. I would have thought people were more. No. Nah. Sensitive or mindful no. is even a better word. If, I, I feel like there's there are people who are mindful. There's either one extreme, one where they will just completely avoid the situation altogether or the ones that are just straight down the line and, yeah, it is frustrating. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and unsurprisingly through all this, you've become such a symbol of hope and inspiration for so many people. What does that mean to you? Oh, it's 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 a big 
big thing to think about. But I think with me, it's something that I, I put myself out there. I show people what's possible. And if I can give somebody hope, if I can show people that your life doesn't necessarily have to be over just because of something you go through. It's tough. It's hard. You have days where you don't want to get up. And I always say you should really look for something positive in each day, even if some days you have to look a little harder. And by that, I mean, I have days where I think, oh my God, everything's so shit. I don't want to get out of bed, but hang on a minute. I'm alive. I have my kids. I have this, I have that. Maybe I can't walk today. Maybe I'm waiting on a leg because someone won't fund me a leg. And that's in the situation I'm in at the moment, but I'm here. I'm alive. I can still use crutches. I can still get up and about. I can still go and enjoy things. So it's just about showing people that you get one life. And I don't want people to look back on in 20 or 30 years time and go, shit, I just wasted my life. Being so, yes, you can be upset. Don't get me wrong. You have days, but don't waste your life worrying about something that you can't change. Was that part of the reason that you decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? (laughs) Yes, and the fact that I had no idea really what Kilimanjaro was. (laughs) I knew it was a mountain. I knew it was going to be tough. And that was in the stage where I actually was told not to run anymore. So I sort of had nothing else to do. It's the biggest freestanding mountain in the world. So by that, it's it's a little bit bigger than Everest Base Camp. So it's nearly 6,000 metres. And, yeah, the lack of oxygen up there really got to me. I I have a feeling people tell you not to do something. You're like, no, I'm going to do that and I'm going to do it really well. Do you know what? I think it's more myself. I have doubts in my mind and I think, oh, I really don't know if I can do that. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Like Dancing with the Stars, I don't think I surprised anybody more than myself because I I honestly thought you can dance at 1 o'clock in the morning drunk at a nightclub. Dancing and think you're so good. Everybody thinks they're good. (laughs) To dancing on stage sober in front of the whole of Australia, I thought, I can't do that. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and do it because I really hate not being able to do things. I think that's what drives me. And so how was that? How was hiking that mountain? Oh, my God, so hard. So um, one of the hardest <laughs> things you've ever done, do you think? Yeah, I nearly gave up. I nearly gave up many times. And I'll be honest, I sat down thinking I would and it took about seven to eight, seven and a half days to do it. Oof. And I, the days were hard and long, but being fit and athletic, I, it got me through. And I took my leg maker over with me because just in case something broke down and wear and tear, blisters were horrendous, but nothing compared me for the summit. That was when I nearly gave up. Four climbers from my group had been taken to hospital with fluid on their lungs, altitude sickness. And I didn't realize what lack of, I mean, altitude, sorry, lack of oxygen up top would feel like until I got there. How I'd, does it feel? Oh my God. It feels like you're a 40 pack a day smoker. <laughs> so just really hard to breathe? Yeah. Okay. You sort of, you pick up your bag and you sit down and it takes you a good five minutes to recoup. So the summit, we had to leave at 11 o'clock that night, the highest peak. They wanted us to summit eight o'clock the next morning. So you can imagine walking all through the night, nonstop. It was dark. I had four pairs of pants on, gloves, jacket. It was minus 20 degrees. So all day leading up to it, we're in a big group. We'd sit down for lunch. It was tough, like physically. And they were you could see your camp every time you set off and go, there's our camp over there. It took about 10 hours to get there because you were up and down and around. And being an amputee, walking is something that most of us hate doing. But walking uphill is horrendous. You can't really get over your knee very well, so it becomes stiff. But, yeah, the summit was we're in single file. This time we all broke off into our own separate ways because some were struggling, some weren't. So you just was dark and you head down and I kept telling myself, I can't do it. I can't do this. What got you through to the summit? My amazing porter at the time got me through as well. He's, I'd sat down and I would cry and I was a bit delusional. So I think that helped. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, I can't do this. I got to go. And I thought I've been here for six days. I'm, physically, I can do it. Mentally, I can do it. It's hard. It's very hard. And what's hard is giving up. What's hard is, is keep going. What's easy is to give up. And I kept saying, if I went home now, I'd forever yeah. be kicking myself. And I think that's what got me through. Yeah. That's incredible. That is such an amazing story and must provide so much hope to so many people. I know with I, I could never, ever, ever do that. Ever. <laughs> you shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm really aiming. I would love to do Kokoda and Everest Base Camp, but having two kids is a little bit harder now. Makes it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. And what do you hope people who perhaps might feel different or perhaps are even living with a disability, get out of your story and watching your journey? I just want them to to know that I always say that they're enough, but I just want them to know that there are so many opportunities out there. There's so many people like them as well. I think that's one that's one of the things that's really hard. You, if you don't know anybody in your situation, you sort of feel isolated. And I think that's why we need to encourage people to get out more, to to be around people like themselves and to also show that 
if you've got a dream, just because of who you are doesn't mean you can't do it. Just put your head down. It may take you longer. May take, may, you may look a little bit different doing it, but you're worthy. Everybody is worthy of the same opportunities and I just want people to know that they are. How important has it been throughout this whole process to find this sense of purpose through what you went through? Yeah, it's, it's from the very beginning, I think, like I said, I set goals for myself and I did it for myself at the beginning and I do do a lot for myself. But halfway through my journey, I started to realize that I was changing people's lives. And maybe it was only one person here, one person there, but I was. And they were asking me questions. I got messages of, oh, my little girl wants to start sport, but I didn't know she could or where can she go? So I started to really realize that I do have a purpose. And there are people out there who think that they can't, but by seeing me now that they can. And I'll continue to do it as long as I can. And yeah, it's, it's an amazing feeling to give back and also show my parents that I'm okay that yeah. I'm, I'm more than okay, that I'm living a life that, you know, I may not have been living if I had two legs. I probably wouldn't be living if I had two legs. I wouldn't have traveled the world. I wouldn't be accepting as accepting as I am. My eyes wouldn't have been open to the reality of what life is. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the main lessons this experience has taught you, do you think? Oh, that's a hard one. I think to never give up, to never stop trying, to never let anybody make you feel that you're less than anything. And I think that's a huge one because being 15, dating, going out, you know, that was hard being on, I met my pet partner on Tinder. (laughs) As you all do, Tinder's success story. (laughs) That's the only way people meet these days, I'm sure of it. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it is. Oh, I don't know about these days. I feel like Tinder's gone a little bit down here. True. But, you know, I've had people who, I've had guys who aren't into the whole one leg thing and it's it's fine. It it, it is what it is and I'm not stupid. I know that's it, but I, I want I've learned to know that I'm enough. I am who I am. I can't change it. And yeah, I think that's the, it's, it's accepting that life's short. Life is really short. And if you, if you worry all the time about everything that can go wrong, you're going to be an unhappy person and you're going to regret it. So you've achieved so much in your lifetime already. What's next? Oh, <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. Get over this second baby first. It changed everything. I, you know, I'll be back in sport. I'll be back competing. And I, I did retire unofficially from athletics I, prematurely, but I have one more aim and that's to run again. We're mainly jump again. And we're doing it in a way where I won't be saying I'm going to be back running for Australia. I'll do it on my own terms, but I'll still be lifting. So I definitely will be lifting. You're going to be there one way or another. <laughs> I'll be there. I really want to beat able-bodied people at powerlifting. You know, that's my main dream. I'll never beat them at running. That's the reality of being an above knee amputee. But if I can outbench an able-bodied person in my class, I'll be happy. I reckon that it's absolutely <laughs> something you're going to achieve very soon. Yeah, I know. I need to, I need to, you know what, I need some of my own motivation because I keep putting things off to the next week. Because when you've got kids, you know, or, or a busy lifestyle, it's very easy to put it off. And I get that now. But maybe I was a little bit not understanding when I used to try and push my friends to go to the gym who worked Monday to Friday. They didn't love working out like I did. And I was like, well, I can't understand why you don't want to do it. And now I get it. You know, they, you, you've got... It's not enough hours in the day sometimes and it's easy to sit down and go, I'm not going. So I have to push myself. What were you benching? About 65 to 70 kilos Jeez. and I was in the, I was weighing about 48. So I have to, I have to weigh, weigh myself. So I have to be in a weight class. Yep. I have to weigh under 48 kilos. Mm-hmm. So That's incredible. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it was, I was I'm looking back now, you know, when you always look back and you think, shit, I actually was really, so really fit, strong. but you just want to be better and better all the time. And now I'm starting from scratch, but I've got to, I've got to deal with that. I... Recently at the gym, I went up to 10 kilo dumbbells and I'm like, I am freaking strong. <laughs> so now I feel Dumbbells very are, are different though. Okay, cool. Yeah. Then I'll the dumbbells are hard. I was a lot better on dumbbells <laughs> than most people though. But. Right. So is it the bar? Yeah. So okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's the 20 kilo bar with the weights on yes. the side. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. we do a lot of accessories, which is dumbbells, which is a, di- I find it addictive. I don't know about you, but I find working out addictive. Yeah. And I like, I much prefer doing weights and things yeah, like that as same. well. So I, I get know, what you mean. Funny. It's I getting to that next level of strength. Yeah. 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 And what would the Kelly now tell the Kelly in her worst, darkest moments where, you, you know, you didn't want to go on, you didn't, you were so disillusioned with everything yeah, and everything felt like it was too hard? What would you tell her now? I would tell her that it would be, it, everything's going to be okay and you may not see it now and it may take a long time, but just keep up. And I would tell her that your goals in life don't have to be limited. I think that's one thing I worried about as a 15 year old that I would just have to just get a leg and just never have any of these amazing hopes and dreams and things that I was aiming for. And just to say, keep going, keep aiming and you'll be okay. You'll meet the most amazing people in your life. You will travel the world. And yeah, just you, you, 
you'll have beautiful children. So I think, and you can still do all that and meet somebody amazing as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a gorgeous note to end on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such an incredible chat. Thank no, you very thank much. You. Thanks. We'll chat soon. Cheers. See you. Thank you so very much for listening. Isn't Kelly just a breath of fresh air? Her optimism is so inspiring and I just loved every minute of chatting to her. I felt so good when I left her house and I hope that's how you felt when this episode finished as well. If you'd like to follow Kelly on Instagram, you can do so at Kelly Cartwright. As always, you can connect with me at Bambi and Baby underscore. And if you're loving Lemonade, please hit subscribe so you can keep up to date with each episode. And if you'd be so kind as to leave a review and hit five stars and maybe even tell your friends about my podcast, I'd be so appreciative. I should let you know this will be my final episode of 20. 19 and probably for good reason you could probably hear that I am losing my voice I don't know what's happened but um anyway I'll soldier on I'm going to take a few weeks off over Christmas and New Year's to hang with my son at the beach and chill out and recharge ahead of what I'm hoping will be an epic 2020 there are so many exciting things happening with the podcast and I'm so blown away by how quickly it's grown in such a small amount of time and that's all because of the support you guys give me I've got some really exciting plans for Lemonade so stay tuned as I said, by hitting subscribe. And I can't wait to be back in your earphones, refreshed and raring to go in a few weeks. Have a brilliant Christmas break. Stay safe and please eat heaps and heaps of food. And I'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.